morning, everyone, and welcome to the lecture. My name is Mariana Liukkonen, and this is Anneina Rantanen, and we are assistants on this course. So today's topic is Agile and Lean Software Development, and the lecturer is Christian Rautianen from Sober IT. So the stage is yours now, Christian. All right, great, thanks. Yes, it works. Oh, well. Uh, does everybody hear me? Good. Let's go with that. Sounds good. Uh, yes. Topic is Agile and Lean. I'm not sure if we have time to get to the Lean part, but just be on the safe side. I made a few, few basic slides about Lean software development. Lean and Agile, well, there's a fight if they are related, how closely they are related, and so on, but uh, let's not go into that. Let's figure out some of the basic stuff. Uh, I have a few background slides just to remind again about Agile and uh, maybe give you an idea of uh, also my attitude against or for or at least regarding Agile software development. I'm going to talk about time-facing, which is in the heart of Agile software development, and uh, basically also could be in the heart of iterative and incremental, any any kind of software development. Uh, I'm going to tell you about a case example who actually employed the model. I'm going to show you about time-facing and uh, what practices and what things they did. and. Uh, uh, as said, if we have time, at the end, I will tell you a few basic things about uh, what is today co considered uh, lean software development. It comes from lean manufacturing, but uh, the pop especially have uh, made a huge effort in translating some of the lean manufacturing stuff into software development. I have to everything that I have a few good points, too. But to start with the basics, uh, Agile, I don't know actually what was said in the lecture. I guess Agile has been a topic, but it's really not the typical thing you would have seen in the beginning of 2000 was that, yes, we are going Agile, we're throwing away all documentation, and we just hack away. And that is not being Agile. That is being stupid and uh, irresponsible and uh, unprofessional also at that. They are structured. They are very disciplined, or they, at least they should be for them to work. If you lose that discipline, which is built in to the principles and practices of Agile software development process models, you will actually be, well, hanging on those same heroistic individual efforts as you always were. It won't be anywhere better than with, with even the wrongly interpreted waterfall model. So, so structure and discipline is the key for successful software development. There's uh, not that much new, actually, at least not from a process viewpoint. Even, even most of the practices have been around in one form or another, Already from the 50s or 60s, well, in software development, uh, from the 60s anyway, but it, it's, it's not like they actually reinvented software engineering or anything, these guys. It's, it's really, they took good old practices, brought them back, kind of, 
served in a new, more, let's say, fun flavor, and uh, brought them back, which is which in itself is not a bad thing, really. But uh, just remember that this is no new fantastic silver bullet. Even the lean lean stuff is, I mean, that that age old stuff that's that's brought actually really late to software development, but still the, even the lean part is really old, old theory and stuff from Japan. And uh, actually how is, well, I have a slide about that later. And the main principle here is that change is not a bad thing. So in, in turbulent environments where you will face a lot of uh, changes, your customer doesn't really know what they want, they, they can't express it, you have to kind of work your way through and, and show some some concrete software or, or at least user interfaces or something to get the discussion going about what they want. For this kind of uh, environment, agile software development was meant and developed. So so change is a good thing. We need to do some change. We actually, if it isn't scary, it's an opportunity. We can actually make something that actually the customer needed, not what they so-called wanted in the beginning. So, so the target is always moving in this, in this sense. And the focus is on delivering value to the customer. Common to both Agile and Lean. And, uh, well, as I said, the, the main, uh, let's say sweet spots about Agile development, I don't remember if I have that slide. I might have that slide also. Yes, I have that slide. So I, I'll come back to that. And, uh, Anyone who is interested in, in learning more and reading lots of white papers, articles, and stuff, the Agile Alliance is the place to go. And uh, Coburn, in his book 2001, he was quite insightful, actually, at that time. He, he mentioned what, what the sweet spots for Agile software development would be. So it would be one team, a co-located team of three to eight people, sitting in, in the same room so that they could actually communicate freely face-to-face -face because that's the fastest way of communicating and, and uh, a lot of unnecessary mistakes can be avoided through that kind of communication, which unfortunately, if you, if you write a document, somebody will interpret what you wrote not quite as you intended. So, so you will have a broken phone effect very fast if you use some kind of intermediate so, so agile software development considers that face-to-face -face discussion that's that's the main way of communication. So naturally, you can draw the conclusion that that that's the sweet spot is one team, one co-located team. And uh, what the first um, and the one of the biggest models, extreme programming and Scrum, brought brought very much is that you need to have constant contact with an expert user or the customer, I'd rather paying customer if, if those are two different persons. And that's something always to remember. So if you have that availability, you are actually uh, able to work your way through small features and, and, and put some value so that you can discuss, is this what you wanted? How did you actually mean? What constraints do we have to consider when we're building this software? And then this kind of conversation, if you use email for that, you might wait for an answer, which you could get in uh, 15 minutes of conversation. You could wait days to get that same answer. So 
that would slow you down. Again, this face-to-face -face communication important is, is emphasized. Um, at the maximum, you should work in one-month iterations. In, in Scrum, they call them sprints. And the point is that uh, if you work in any longer iterations, you actually have problems doing the really, I mean, supposing that the turbulent environment factor is still valid, and that's where the sweet spot also is, then if you, if you plan for something, detailed planning for more than one month, you will probably be wrong, and you will change your plan. So that plan would be a total waste. And uh, actually, these guys emphasize planning. Plans are not that important. I mean, plans are just that's a snapshot of the planning at some point in time. And plans do change. So you have to do more planning. And uh, to do that and to kind of take away some of the complexity of trying to figure out everything at once, they suggest uh, max one-month iteration. I guess the industry based on companies I've seen this and last year even for big systems, which they, they build with uh, 15 to 30 teams. And, uh, a very key ingredient is, of course, to, to get the te technical parts together. And for that, you need fully automated regression tests and continuous integration. It's really really the key to see that everything works. You can find the defects early, and you can actually fix the defects before they ever get out of production or out to production, depending on your terminology. So uh, if you have, say, nightly builds or, or even frequent, more frequent builds, hourly builds, then you actually see if some, some of those tests will fail, and you can start looking for the cause very easily because you haven't written that many lines of code when that, when that fault has come. So it's, it's pretty easy to isolate where the fault might be. It might still be hard to figure out what, what, what did it and what other parts of the system might be influenced. And therefore, uh, the key would be to have a really, really good coverage on those tests. And uh, if you want to do everything perfectly, you will never get to the market. So there always has to be a balance on this. What's good enough? How much do we actually write? And, and where can we not do it? And uh, that's not a topic of discussion for this lecture, but it's still important to think about that too. And uh, while you have that safety net of those tests and you don't have that much documentation, you really do have to have that safety net because otherwise, well, those tests are mainly there to, to tell you how to actually design the system on a re really low level. Uh, acceptance tests, if they are automated, they will tell you what the customer wanted and how to test that. And you actually have a nice safety net that, that you can move fast with and do changes and, and be confident or hope to be confident that those automatic tests will catch any mistakes you made when you go faster. And there's no way to go fast if you have poor quality. If you start with a legacy with 10,000 bugs, you won't be going fast forward. You will, you will make some new code, everything will break, and you have no clue what broke. You might start writing uh, tests for those legacy parts which you are actually touching, 
but because the legacy code is probably so spaghetti anyway, uh, you never know what parts actually will be influenced by the code you write. So you will be in a lot of trouble. So agile and, and let's say legacy is, is still a slight problem. But they do recommend that if you do that, then you should start writing all those tests also for the legacy code. Sometimes the legacy is Fortran or Cobol or whatnot, and there aren't that many programmers around anymore who actually know those languages, so might be in a bit of trouble. Probably there's at least no uh, unit framework, testing framework for those languages. Maybe there is. I don't know. I haven't checked lately. A few years ago, there was still, I think, one, but might be nowadays. But then again, clever coder writes their own frameworks and libraries and stuff like that. So craftsmanship is always the key if you really want to be good. And uh, back to these guys, the Agile Alliance. They they went skiing one one night February day, I think it was, in uh, 2001 or something, to the Colorado Rockies. And uh, I think there were 17 of those guys there. And they all had in common that they really disliked the way software was being built. And they wanted to change it. And they all had made a methodology or at least some practices that they, that they considered would, were much better, a much better way of working. So they agreed that in, in, in that days, even in that days, software development, the change that was, that was this constant actually. There will always be change, and it will probably be rapid and unexpected, and for that, you need new ways of working. Well, or, or at least a good old way back. So they managed to agree in a couple of days that those <coughs> agile methods, which they were called only at that point, would have to be respondents to change. They would have to take into consideration that change is a fact of life, and then it's an opportunity and everything should be done so that change would be as easy as possible to the software. They also agreed on the so-called Agile Manifesto. I'm not going to go into detail there. And uh, 12 other more detailed principles about how valuable software frequent delivery is, customer interaction, they should customers or users or whatever business representatives and developers should use conversation on a daily basis to discuss the system and to, to get the trust between those two parties. I still haven't seen that really working in any, at least in any bigger company. So trust issues are maybe the biggest issues today that hinder solid agile software development practices to, to actually work in, in at least the bigger companies. But then again, bigger wasn't really the sweet spot. And we're not going to talk about scaling Agile today, but it's, it's the hot topic on top of Lean today that how, how do we actually scale Agile for this 1,000-person project? The answer is you don't actually scale Agile. I, I, I claim that still Agile works with the sweet spot. One team doing their stuff. You can somehow scale and modify the organization and do stuff to actually make the organization more susceptible to using those agile teams so that the coordination effort between those teams would be as low as possible. 
And then we come to, to what Parnas said about uh, low, low coupling, high cohesion and stuff like that. So you can actually in the software. But for that, you need really, really good and experienced architects to actually figure out how to do that and, and get the things going. We have uh, Dean Leffingwell, we have Greg Larman and a few other consultants who have uh, discussed this, how to scale scale stuff. And, uh, well, it's really an extended topic. It will be a topic on, on the software process course. So if you're coming on that course next year or some other year, then you will hear about that more. But let's not go there because I, I still think that the Agile Suite for this is one thing. You can get the continuous integration going with many teams. That's really a key issue if you scale up and so on. So again, the technical excellence should be there. But uh, organizational-wise, Agile doesn't scale that easily, actually. But it is still the Suite for that is. But they couldn't agree on top of this manifesto and the principles was exactly how. They tried to argue about, well, making one kind of easy methodology which they all could then promote, but they couldn't agree what what were the best, actually best ways to do things if you comply to those uh, manifesto things and the principles. So they let it alone. And that's why we have many different process models for agile software development which are considered agile. And uh, it would take a day or more to actually go through all the details about those models, so I won't do that. What's common to those models is time-facing as an issue. And time-facing is kind of the thing you can use as your thinking tool about how to implement practices, how to, how to, how to coordinate stuff. And uh, it might be also, and uh, actually is in the, at least the Leffingwell model, the key how to scale Agile too. So that's why I'm going to talk about time-facing. Well, of course, the other reason why I'm talking about time-facing is that I actually created a model for time-facing, a meta-model for, well, what Microsoft used as a process, what the Agile software development processes look like, and so on, also way back in the beginning of 2000. And uh, it's my favorite subject, so that's what I'm talking about. Surprise, surprise. Now you have to suffer. Any questions so far? Just checking if you are all are sleeping or not. Probably not. Time pacing, a more generic term for time boxing, refers to to actually time boxing refers to a, a box of time in which you try to achieve something. You have a goal for that box and pretty much try to achieve that, but you might have to fix. Time pacing is a more generic description of, of creating a rhythm. Uh, in Lean, you call that cadence. Uh, creating a rhythm for how, how you actually work in what kind of uh, different time horizons, because you can plan and work on different time horizons. If you have long-term planning, it, it's a much, much longer time horizon for which you are planning. It is a much more high-level plan. You don't, don't go into detail because that would be waste. And the point is that you fix the schedule on many levels. You might have a release schedule, an iteration schedule, and even a daily meeting. That's the schedule, too. And uh, through those, you manage how you work, what you produce, and what you will 
then give away, the schedule will be fixed. What you will be giving away is scope, hopefully not quality, because then you're screwed. Basically, as I said earlier, quality is the key to actually being able to be agile. If quality isn't there, you're, well, you're not anything, and your customers won't be happy. So quality just has to be there. Good enough quality again, because making perfect quality, then we never make any software, unfortunately. And uh, once you have this written, it's actually, well, people are very rhythmical creatures. I mean, if you go to the, the States, to L.A. or something, there's a 10-hour time difference, and your body will react to that time difference because you're used to a certain rhythm, daily rhythm. And uh, that's one of the reasons people actually do like Agile. The other reason is, of course, it's, it's, it's really the techies and, and those people who actually figured out that this is the way to go, so it's appealing to the technical part of people. But it's, it's really appealing to actually have this steady rhythm because that creates a routine which will make it pretty much easier if it works for you to work. It's, and uh, even if you have steady deadlines and it might feel like, oh, damn, every two weeks I have to get this thing together. Oh, what a stress. When you actually learn how to do it, get your technology, your continuous integration engines, all that stuff together, and you get into that rhythm, it's actually no stress at all. It's just great. We have this thing together, and next week we build some more. Cool. We actually see what we're doing. We see the progress, and that's reward. And that's one of the key motivating factors behind these agile software development models. And uh, as I said, time horizons should be considered different time horizons because they will influence how you, for example, split your uh, requirements. They will form a requirement hierarchy. I skip that slide from today, and uh, I have talked to Mario Kalpina, who will be here on Thursday, and and, and uh, unfortunately I can't talk to her tomorrow and <laughs> before Thursday, but uh, maybe maybe still today. And she's trying to get some of the what she's saying also connected to what I'm saying today. But let's see how that works on Thursday. Unfortunately, I will be in work after then, but. Uh, Let's see, let's see if she, she can bring, bring some of that. At least I, I made a big mail about this hierarchy of requirements and you actually need really good requirement engineering practices for that to, to be a reality or, or fact. And uh, unfortunately that part is really swept under the carpet by the agile people. But what you get also from this cadence, this rhythm, is this possibility to reflect on your progress on many levels, on the technical level, on the process level, and so on. You see how things work. You can actually make improvements. You don't have to change every day. That would be stupid and silly because then you wouldn't change really at all because you would just, oh, it will change tomorrow. Why bother changing today? We'll change up tomorrow again. So I'll just do what I always did. And, and I don't even listen to those who say what's going to change. You don't want that kind of atmosphere. So change on a certain rhythm, that's good. Bigger change should be, for example, on, on, on a one-and-a-half-year rhythm at the most. Because organizational change and stuff like that just won't sink in in much less than one-and-a-half-year. 
start uh, trying out new practices, improving the way of working, that could work on a two-week cycle. So there you have to consider those time horizons in your planning for different things. And that's why they are a great thinking tool. The more experienced you are, the, the easier it actually gets to think through these time horizons and cadences. So the more actually attractive lean and, and, and agile software will be. The most important time horizons, naturally, is the rhythm of where you actually do package together the product in a way that could be delivered or at least shown to the customer. And that iteration or sprint in Scrum, well, one month to two weeks, and uh, what you actually have there are control points for planning for that two weeks or one month and then checking what happened and actually reflecting back on how could we have done it better. So you have the doing and the planning. And the, the, the idea of, of this small time horizon to actually get something done is also that the team is shielded from any outside influences, except, of course, if they need more knowledge about what they're actually building. But no new requirements should drop into that time box and, and uh, no such uh, unnecessary interruption should drop into that time box. So when you actually do concentrated work, you, you get really good results. If you have to switch between, say, four projects at the same time, which, unfortunately, in the bigger companies, some of the expert roles will have to do, the switching time and switching costs will be too much to handle, and uh, you will lose a lot of, lot of that effectiveness. So since they're the gurus, they're still ten times effective than, more effective than the others, so they actually do get things done. But uh, if they would work in a different mode, they would get so much more things done. But considering uh, if not all are those experts, then maybe even splitting them between projects will slow them down enough so that the others can work in their rhythm. So maybe it could even be seen as a good thing. Oh, don't quote me on that. And for the planning part, you have to consider, okay, now we have this two-week or, or one-month window. What can we actually accomplish in that time? Now, we use terms like velocity and history data to actually see how much did we do last time? And, uh, well, it, it's like the weather. If it's sunny today, we might as well assume that it's sunny tomorrow, because that's as good a guess as any. Uh, knowing the weather in Finland, that's really a bad guess, actually. But but uh, let's say it's snowing tomorrow. That would be a good guess today. <clears throat> but anyway, the, the the stuff is that you know on a high level what you can accomplish, and then you plan for that amount, and then you try to accomplish it. But you have a leading goal for what you're trying to do, so that if you can't really accomplish all that, you might still be able to reach the goal doing a bit less. And uh, you should never plan 100% utilization, because then you have no slack in actually decreasing the scope. And uh, probably, at least for the one month, time boxes, you would have to do it anyway, because you really can't plan that far ahead anyway. Not, not on a detailed enough level to know exactly what you're doing. Unless you're, I mean, 15, 20 years experience in the whole team, then it is highly possible that you can do that. 
or if the stuff is so familiar, it's, it's a product you have been doing 15 years, but that's, that's very seldom now that that would happen. So you create your plan, and then you start working on it, and uh, two weeks or one month later, you check back, okay, how did we do against that plan, actually? Because uh, at least for the goal part, you have to reach those goals. For the stories or whatever you use for the planning and requirements for that iteration, you might not want to make that much of a, did we actually accomplish everything of those. But then again, some of the stakeholders need to know, did you actually accomplish them? So you would actually reflect on those. Then you check, how did we do actually? Were the practices we were using good? Should we change our practices? What should we do better? And uh, it would be nice to measure stuff, but only for your own good, for your improvement on the team level. And there's the trust issue again. If the team starts measuring something, management will, will want to see it, and then they will use it against the team, or at least that's what the team thinks. So probably the team doesn't want to measure because it might leak to management. And there's this big distrust issue between teams and management that they're only here to control us and, and, and to police us and then they really don't want us to be creative. They say that, yes, you do creative stuff, be innovative, but they really don't want us to do that. And uh, this is the biggest, one of the biggest problems I've, I've seen and noticed during the past two years in companies. This, this major trust issue, which makes it almost impossible to actually do any sensible and good recommended practices from, from the past 40 years. It might even hinder the agile software development in a way. So be careful not to take that attitude with you when you become managers. There would be a nice reality show. With, we, we start with, uh, say, 12 uh, really guru craftsmanship coders who've been coding 15 years are really good at it. And uh, then the show would be who wants to be a manager. And uh, we would see how every common sense vanishes from the heads of those really smart guys who are really common sense guys, too, until we have a final winner who actually has some yellow stuff in his head and just yells at people and, and doesn't have any common sense at all, anyway. Because that's, unfortunately, what tends to happen. The problem is we don't have a, a reward system or or, or, or a system for wages that promotes people based on their skill in their current position. But we have to make the managers to actually be able to pay them more. And uh, that is something, when you become managers, that you should try also to change, because that's the root of all evil. Don't make the good coders become managers so that they don't do any code, so that you can actually get bad coders instead. And when they become good, you have to promote them to managers and get some bad coders instead. You see the vicious cycle? I mean, anybody has noticed this in real life? Obviously, you're too young. You'll get there. You'll get there. And you will understand what I was talking about. You will remember this because this is so absurd. All right. When we have those iterations in place and we get the engines rolling, we get stuff out, kind of out, packaged together, tested, it's good quality. Every two weeks or one month we can show it off, 
we can gather some requirements based on that, we are on a good road. So, what does those iterations give us? Well, forces us to divide the complexity into manageable chunks. So, we, we actually know what we are working on at that point in time. The problem might be that we actually lose the sight of the big picture. What was the vision for the release or the product? And we start working on these small things and we put blinders over our eyes and we just do these small things and we lose, lose control and these small things take us to somewhere where we shouldn't be. Okay, Scrum uses the so-called role, well it's not the so-called role, it's a role called product owner that is supposed to fix all this and make sure the team is on the right way all the time. But what does a product owner who is a business representative know about architectural issues and stuff like that? Oh well, Scrum takes care of this by saying, well there's the role of team which is responsible for the technical part. So they will tell the product owner that no, we can't go there because of architectural issues. And then we come back to distrust business people, developers. Well now he's just saying to me that we can't go there because he's lazy and he doesn't really want to do that much work, which it would take. And well, you, you get the picture again. It's a vicious circle that might happen. And it's not easy to get that going. It's fairly easy in the startup where everybody really works for the same thing to actually get the thing going, get some money into the company and become bigger company. And there won't be those issues. But as, as fast as you get as big as Nokia or whatnot, then you will start to have these issues. I think we could go faster. I think those guys are lazy. And I don't know where this is coming from. I would really like to see this reality show who wants to be a manager. I, maybe I would understand the psychology after that. I, I really don't get it. Have you ever seen a good, lazy developer? Leffingwell uh, actually suggests that when you have these iterations, sprints, then that every third or every fourth sprint should be a hardening sprint, that is, you actually plan for absolutely no content in those. If the two or three earlier sprints actually lead something, then you would finish that in the beginning of those two weeks in that hardening sprint. And then you have free hands to do whatever you want. Oh no, oh no, they will just be playing World of Warcraft or something. We can't, we can't do that. No, 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 they can't be such a person. No, no. That's the management attitude. What happens when a good coder gets freedom to do what he wants? He will go back to his own code. He will actually see the smells and think, oh no, did I write this? Now I have to fix this. So he'll, he will actually go back there, refactor and make it better and think of better technologies or better ways of, of, of actually doing good code. Because he wants to make good code. He might be lazy, he might not work. 12 hours a day during the hardening sprint, he might actually play some World of Warcraft, but that will probably just let his brain think about new innovative stuff, and next day he will actually do those, and everything will get better. So again, when, not, not just if, but when, some or most of you become managers at some point in time, don't distrust your coders. Or don't hire people you don't trust. So 
you actually do get them to do something ready at regular intervals using iterations. You actually see that the work goes forward. And uh, you also, well, the reflection part, I said. And uh, it is really a good feeling to be able to concentrate on the work at hand when, when everything around you is frozen and you have a scrum master or what, what not team leader who will protect the rest of the team from all those outside influences. So in a way, I, I, I do like a lot of the things the, the Agile Manifesto and the Agile Alliance has brought to the table because those are really nice even from a psychological and human point of view. Okay, so we make a bunch of iterations. So what? We do have to release a product. Scrum actually at some point said that you, you should release after every iteration. So you don't really have to have a separate release. Uh, Lean says that just just do one story at a time, and when you have enough stories, then you release. Or if you want to build a cadence to, to be sure that you release often enough, then, then you have time boxes for releases, and you release whatever is ready at that point. Well, this is a marketing nightmare. Let's, let's not go there. You just can't really work like that from a marketing perspective. But still, it's a, it's a nice idea, but it's it's kind of too idealistic in many cases. So you need to have a release. Somebody might want to use the word project there. I think that the word project actually makes things a lot uh, harder. People start to think in a very old-fashioned way when they hear the word project, and that is not a good idea. The idea is to release as often as is sensible to provide value for the customer. I've seen some businesses, well, if you're a service provider with your own servers, you might release every night because uh, customers might not even notice that the product just gets better and better. And then you might want to promote some new features that are coming, and, and that's the marketing part. But still, you need to, you should have some kind of time box releases for, for many reasons, which I'll come back to. So, when considering and planning for a release, you should at least consider if it's an internal or external release. An internal release basically is when you practice to put the product together to get your all your environments, all your technologies into place so that you can make those releases easier. And you can practice those by making internal releases and package all the stuff and actually provide the, the documentation like user guides and stuff like that also at the same time. So you update those that it, it isn't such a big effort if you release, say, in six months. So instead you release one internal release in three months and the external release in six months. And you actually find out some of the problems on the system level and if your continuous integration actually is able to find them. And there are load testing issues and stuff like that which might take weeks or so to test if your product is big enough. So you will have to have more time to do those. So you will actually have to package the stuff much, much more often, or at least to have the more comprehensive continuous integration environment to do that. It isn't enough that just a team can integrate. Every team has to integrate, and the system has to be running basically all the time for that to happen. Also, when you do release planning, 
you should and can consider the competencies needed. I use the ugly word resources there, but it's really about competences. What, what kind of people do we have working? What, what are they actually able to do? Who can do databases? Who can do connectors? Who can do whatnot? And uh, maybe one most important part in this is figuring out the dependencies. If there are multiple teams working on the same product, figure out the dependencies between those teams and looking out for the bottlenecks in, in the skills department. You don't want to plan for a release that produces so much new database stuff that you actually don't have that many experts who can work on that. Because that would be unrealistic. And we'll come back to that. You actually, that's why you need the long-term planning horizon, even if you know that things are going to change. You're going to need the long-time planning horizon for competence issues and also for negotiation issues with customers. But you can look at how many people we actually do have for this particular project or how many teams, depending, depending on, the, on the size. If we now talk about just one team, then it's, it's pretty easy. You can see if the team is available or not. But that's, that's really not so hard a situation. Let's say you have three teams working on projects and then knowing who will be available to actually form a virtual team of some of those members to form a fourth team to start this project and then gather some more. And there, there are lots of things you can actually do which are beyond the discussion of agile software development. Just common sense and, and the stuff you can actually do to, to organize things better what, for the situation at hand. So you have iterations, you have release projects, great. But if your iteration is one month, you, you really need to have some more control points just to check where you're going and how you're doing. And you might consider this, of course. I forgot about that one. Uh, for uh, release planning, you might consider planning for teams for each iteration. You might plan how many iterations you're going to need for that release, and you might put some teams. It could be a content team, or it could be some kind of, we're going to do lots of refactoring work and, and pay for the technical debt we cost when we finish the last release and stuff like that. So in the first iteration, you might really go for the risky stuff. If you had to do <coughs> some shortcuts, if, <laughs> when, when you had to do some shortcuts to get the last iter um, uh, release out, well, it's called technical debt or quality debt. And uh, as with every debt, if you have too much of it, well, you will go bankrupt. So if you have too much technical debt or quality debt, you will slow down. And you can't be really agile anymore. You will just be fixing those parts and never doing any new features. So, so taking care of those things that cause you the most risk, that is, for, for you to slow down, is what you want to do in the beginning. Also, you want to get the really high-risk uh, features or, or stories ongoing in the beginning so that you can be sure that they are finished by the release, if there are, are some bigger than for, for one iteration. So, so, so you get started. In those middle iterations, you just try to do the most valuable things. So you need to prioritize, of course, and uh, that actually 
should be a collaborative effort between the team and the product owner, product manager, whoever kind of controls the scope from the from a business viewpoint. As, as mentioned earlier, some trust issues might might be in the way of, of doing this sensibly. And of course, very logically, at the end, well, the team is don't break it. Whatever you do, don't break it. Fix it, make it stick together so we can actually release it to the market. So don't do any risky stuff at that point. Microsoft and uh, Netscape did actually do a lot of risky stuff in the early browser wars at the last point. Microsoft started to make uh, Java support to the browser for the 3.0, I think. And uh, they thought they wouldn't have to release it in 3.0, and then Netscape released Java support. And then uh, just a few weeks before the deadline for the release of 3.0 for Microsoft, they, whoa, what happened? The market just did something evil to us. Well, we have to release Java support. Uh-oh. Let's keep all the other nice little stuff we were working on, and now everybody focuses on this Java support so we get it ready. And uh, because they had iterations, and they had the chance to replan, they actually could pull it off. Okay, what the quality was, let's not discuss that. It's not an issue. But it's good enough even. Oh well, they're still standing, so while, while we might consider whatever we want about Microsoft, well, it's obviously good enough at least from a business viewpoint, unfortunately. <clears throat> oh well, you can't win them all. Ah, and uh, maybe the main main point in, in, in of course, having to, to time box the release, it is that you, you, at least in certain businesses, you have market windows you have to hit. If uh, there is a Christmas market, you will have to have your product out in time to be bought for the Christmas market. If there's a magazine review on, on, on your product category and you know when those reviews are coming, you will have to have your best possible product version out for that review or for those reviewers to review so you don't want to miss that window and stuff like that. So it's really sensible to make even that time horizon very important to plan and then you have to prioritize what you actually do get to that release, but, well, that, that's the fun of the game. <coughs> and, uh, well, the first part isn't that bad either, because once you have releases and you get release goals, release criteria, it actually forces higher level management and product management to, to at least somehow express and discuss what the strategic goals are. Why are we actually doing this product? Why are we releasing this product with these features at that point in time? And it's actually the job for the developers to question this so that they do understand the, the business implications and they do get to understand what their work, what value their work actually provides so that they can do their work better. So again, when you're planning for a time horizon, that planning is really important. The plan not that important at all, but the planning where the discussion, where the understanding is built, that's the important part. Planning is important. You actually plan a lot if you're agile, if you're doing it properly. 
you basically plan all the time. Somebody is doing some kind of planning every day. Well, if, if, if you do code, you do some kind of planning every day anyway. So, I mean, you just don't write text and then, then it magically becomes a programming language. You actually plan for that too every day. If you do tests first, you really plan because then you write the test as a plan, which you can then run as tests. So you have both the test working both as design and test later. So it's, it's, it's a continuous planning activity on multiple levels. And again, here the time horizons help you figure out what kind of levels you might have. But even two weeks is a long time if you don't follow what you're actually accomplishing. So the recommendations for the lowest time horizon are, are the heartbeats. So uh, XP has the stand-up daily stand-up meetings, which actually can be many per day. I think the recommendation in Ken Beck's first book that was that you will have a stand-up meeting whenever you feel like it, but at least once a day. And it feels really strange, actually, to have these daily meetings if you have a co-located team to sit in the same room and actually make some discussion. But it's actually been shown that they really don't know exactly what the others are doing. So going through every day, the 10 minutes, even 5 minutes I've seen it done in meeting of, of what did you do? Since last time, what are you going to do, and do you feel you have some kind of impediment or problem that would slow you down? To go through this discussion at least helps the Scrum Master or whoever is responsible for fixing those problems for the team to get a grip on what should be fixed next. What's the biggest problem for my team that's slowing us down, that's making us less productive than we could be? And uh, if you don't have those, well, then you have the famous and dreaded weekly meeting where everybody sits for two hours and discusses things that couldn't, nobody could care less about and half the people are asleep. If you instead have every day a 15-minute meeting, you will actually have five times 15 minutes, that's one hour 15 minutes per week of meeting time where nobody has time to fall asleep and everybody actually tells something that is important and interesting. Hopefully. Otherwise, you're, you're doing stupid stuff in your team and you should do your iteration and release planning better. So again, everything plays into the picture. If you have done a poor release plan, you will have poor iteration plan and, and you will have boring heartbeat meetings because nobody does stuff that they think is valuable. I actually saw a team once that was doing a really new innovative product for the company's product line. And uh, in the strategic meetings, people were really excited that, yes, we will, we will actually fill that hole in the market with this product, and it's a really important product for us. When you went and discussed with the team, nobody has told them that this is a strategically important thing to do, so they were just oh, well, we're, we're doing this thing, and then and, and I guess we're doing it because we really don't have one yet, and, and uh, I, I don't really care. I don't think it's very important. So, so where was the communication? Again, the planning part of those time horizons should convey this kind of important 
and inspiring information to the team so that they would see that they're actually doing something that the company considers really valuable from a strategic viewpoint, which will bring the company forward and, and bring them to new markets. So if you fail to do that, yeah, well, the result could be that you have boring heartbeat meetings. If you fail to have heartbeat meetings, you have really, really boring weekly meetings, so please get rid of those at least. And, of course, if you scale, you have 15 teams, then you might need Scrum of Scrum, so one representative from each team tells the other teams what the team has been doing, and then you're already up to half, half an hour a day of, of those meetings. Even that brings it to a total of three hours, no, two and a half hours per week, compared to the but the usually, well, if you have 15 teams, have you have a weekly meeting, well, that's usually a day. So you actually don't have a weekly meeting, you have a monthly meeting, which takes two days. Uh, well, let's not go there. Please, please consider heartbeats on a daily level. It's really sensible. It might feel stupid in the beginning, but it's just because you really haven't planned for things to be done the way they should be done, so that that would make sense. And when you get to that, that's the first thing you wouldn't want to get rid of. That's, that's what one company noticed. They had been using uh, daily heartbeats, daily scrums, actually, for one and a half months. Then they had a survey, and uh, it was a really mixed mixed feeling about the usefulness of having those. And, and uh, one of the comments said, it's, it's really stupid to every day... I'm still working on that same big thing, so every day I'm saying I'm still working on that same big thing. Uh, ever consider splitting that same big thing actually into chunks that would be manageable so that you would actually know what progress you're making on that big thing and what problems you have with that big thing? Well, that's difficult. Yeah, software development is. Face it. It's not a walk on the beach. We wouldn't need to have any courses on it if it, if it actually would be that easy. Some people are naturally born programmers. They do have the craftsmanship, and for them it's easy. But for the majority, well, it's hard work. It's also rewarding work and very interesting work. That's why I, why I stopped coding a long time ago, because I never got, went to sleep. I just continued coding. It was fun. So, so I can't do it. It's too addictive. All right. The nice example of, of how you actually spot problems through these daily meetings is that if Joe is, is doing a thing that he once said would take half a day to accomplish, and uh, the second or third day in a row he's, he's still doing that thing, but he doesn't want to admit he's got a problem. Of course not. It's Joe. So, so the other team members might consider that, uh, really, uh, you said it would take half a day. Now you've been working on it for two and a half days. Can we help you in any way? No. No, you, well, actually, may, may, maybe somebody who knows anything about this could, yeah, okay. And uh, if you let that discussion continue in that heartbeat meeting, you will actually have failed to have good heartbeat meetings. You should, at that point, say that, okay, you just promised to help Joe. After the meeting, get together, fix this problem, and hopefully it's gone by tomorrow. 
Or if the problem for Joe is that uh, the CEO of the company comes every day and tells him, I just talked with the client X, and he just wants this for, for, for that feature we did for him last month, so could, could you please do it for him? And he actually doesn't get to work on the thing he was supposed to do for this release, this iteration. Then Joe can tell that I have an impediment. The CEO comes and tells me to do stuff. And then the Scrum Master will say, like, okay, well, I've got balls. I can take on the CEO. Bring it on, bring it on. You can't disturb my team. You have agreed on these rules in this company for this process. You can't disturb my team. Go away. And uh, at some point, the CEO will understand that, yeah, he's being foolish and stupid. And then he will come back again once or twice just to see if they really meant it. But, oh well. You have to stay strong for that. But these are a place to actually reflect on that problem and many other problems on a daily basis instead of a weekly basis or monthly basis. So you will actually spot problems and you can remove them fast. So, so that's mainly. Then, of course, if, if you do technical stuff like, like daily bills and or, or hourly bills, then, then you have all, all the time kind of a heartbeat technology stuff, but the more important stuff is to actually see those kinds of problems or, or help those who don't want to see those problems to actually see them and, and help on solving those problems, which again, the time, time pacing stuff really helps that, and, and it's a good practice that Agile software develop. development has brought. But as I said, that's actually not enough. Except for the really simple, we're doing this little web web application thingy with this with this four-person team, and and we really don't see any any future for this web application thingy. It's just what this customer wants for this one thing, and it, it won't have a life cycle of its own. It won't be around in 15 years or so. We don't have to maintain it and and do stuff like that. Then you don't really need this. But not many companies actually do those kinds of things. Well. There are still a handful. Most actually do something for themselves or for somebody else that will stay around for a few years. And there will probably be some maintenance issues, some, some competence issues, some technology transfer issues later on down the road. And therefore, you need long-term planning. Again, Planning is important. The long-term plans in themselves are not that important, even if the roadmap helps you communicate with a customer. But the planning part is important, to realize and to try to figure out where the company wants to go in the future. Because if that want means a new technology, new competencies, you can't get those new technologies, new competencies. You can't get that learning in one night or even two nights or even one, one month. If you can't afford to hire those competencies or nobody wants to work for your company, you're really kind of out there, then you have to start training your own people. It will slow your general development down because they will be trying out this new technology. And it will take a lot of time for them to learn, and it will take a lot of time for the company to actually reach the same level of efficiency that they had. So those kinds of really big decisions, you have to understand that there are implications, but you have to make them in, in far enough or 
far back enough to actually get those things going. You can't just wake up a day and, and pick the news, but, oh, the competition did this. Tomorrow we have to do this. It just doesn't happen like this. The long-term planning is, is the innovative part also, that how do we actually get in front of our competition? What do we need for that? How can we accomplish it? So it gives you a possibility to make plans for your needed competences. Uh, maybe strategic partnerships with somebody who has those competences and stuff like that. So actually, even if you're agile or an agile company, this, this is the strategic stuff that needs to be done in order for you to actually make those good release plans with realistic estimates on what you actually have to work with. Because a part of your crew might be doing those new stuff instead, but you need those those stuff to actually get you money in five years' time. You might be doing okay in a quarter economy for a year or two with the old stuff, but what happens then? Nobody wants that stuff. It's old after two years. You need something new. And uh, again, if the quality is bad, you will just be maintaining those and you can never do the new stuff. So there should be a consideration on a long-term scale too. There are other things that actually benefit. And this is really important if you, you, you have this scaled up agile. So then you have to look at portfolios of products, portfolios of projects, portfolios of teams, and what they are doing and how, how their work should be kind of a both coordinated and, and then split in a way. Who does what product, what releases, and, and stuff like that. And you might want to consider that and see if you have some bottleneck resources that is competences, and stuff like that, and ease, resolving those isn't easy and it takes time, so you have to start considering them early enough. And what you do get from that is, again, you force the company to think about its strategy, at least regarding the software product part or software development part. It does provide, that planning and the roadmap does provide a comparison point for trade-off. If you go to a customer and you discuss with the customer that, uh, oh, you want feature X. Oh, but what we don't have feature X in our roadmap until the end of next year. How, how badly do you want feature X? Or how many customers do want feature X? Do we actually move feature X earlier in our roadmap? Is feature X dependent on some technology? We don't know yet. We can't actually move feature X in that case because we didn't take care of the competences. So we have just started to take care of the needed competences. And uh, that actually gives you a nice springboard, again, without too much extra fuss. You need to do that planning to, to, to actually be able to be fast and agile. But it gives you a nice comparison point what we did think that our strategy meant that we do these things, but okay, since now 100 customers want this feature X and we actually can do it, we move it to the previous release. And please remember to remove something out of that release and not just pushing. I've seen, I've seen people shuffle around iterations and, and release content without removing anything away. And finally, they get so bored that they have this list of things and two days left of a release or iteration that what the heck, how did we end here? Or they put so much stuff in their backlog that they come to us and ask, 
Is there any way of visualizing the battle? We have so many items, we don't really know what's in there. Oh. Please give, please put a backlog in, in some kind of priority order where there are just a few items that are actually going to go into production and the rest are, well, they're just ideas which the product owner or product management team or whatever works on to get into priority into that short list of things which we actually do follow that we are actually working on. Don't, don't try to do everything at once because that will slow you down. The normal thing is, hey, we have 15 teams that start doing, working on these 30 products. I, I guess every team can take a couple of products. And for each iteration, we work on both of these products and we try to get 15 features into them. Wow. Well, there's absolutely no content switching and no switching cost involved in, in trying to do everything at once. No. You will get absolutely nowhere if you try to do too much things in parallel. This is something that management just doesn't get. Or they get it on an intellectual level in discussions, and then they just don't get it. They, they, they go and do something else. They start 16 things at once, when they could actually finish much, much more things much faster if they do, did two, time, two things at once and then two things, and then two things, and two things. The usual curve presented, I'm not sure there is empirical evidence really about that, but uh, lots of people have discussed it. If you try to do 16 things in parallel, it will slow you down so that the 16 things, consider they would be ready in one year, even if you do them in parallel. If you split that thing into doing two things at a time, you will actually get the two things done so fast that you have 16, that's eight of those two things, you have 16 things done in six to eight months instead of 12 months. And this, this math is, as I said, it might not be scientifically proven, or, or, but there are some, some group dynamics and, and organizational theories that, that do support this queuing theory is one batch size and stuff like that from lean software development that does support this idea. And uh, management can go and listen to this, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what we have to do. And the next day, they will plan for 16 parallel things. Or if they're really enlightened for 15 parallel things, because it must be a much lesser load. just doesn't work like that. It's a really important thing to remember. Don't push it, because it doesn't work. Then again, doing just one thing at a time, it's difficult. If you have to consider all the architectural considerations for doing all those 16 things, but you're not doing all those 16 things, then you won't remember to consider. And Agile says, you don't have to consider, you refactor, you, you, and the perfect architecture emerges. Well, yeah, if all in your team have 20 to 25 years of experience, I might buy that. Otherwise, I would say bullshit. It doesn't emerge unless somebody makes it. So, it, yes, I'm sorry. It does emerge. And then it's spaghetti or, or you actually hit the dead end even before you get those 16 things done because they can't be done on that architecture, which just emerged. And that might be a problem. So, you still need to have 
some kind of virtual, very competent, skillful team that considers architectural issues and provides you with information, enough information so that you can work and plan with these few things at a time, iteration by iteration. It doesn't go away, even if Agile says it does go away. Don't believe everything they say. It does work when it's Martin Fowler and Kent Beck and Jeff Sutherland, which were at, at least at some point considered to be among the top, top 30 coders in the world. It does work easily when you are top 30 at something in the world. It doesn't translate into any company in any situation with any people can do that stuff. Right. So, any questions about time pacing and agile in general? Based on Microsoft and Scrum and. Yeah, so what does this model development combine? Well, I just showed. Yeah, yeah, but if you want to develop a new model. Ah, if you want to develop. Oh, that's a big question. If you want to develop a new model, what does model development entail? Uh, writing a paper, basically, so that you get improvements from the scientific community. But I mean, just modeling. Uh, are you talking about modeling in general or, or writing a new, new? Well, that, that's a big discussion. I, I've even taken that discussion off the software process course because it's such a big discussion. Usually you write uh, nice figures like, like, like that one. We, we, we think it's an elephant that's lying down. Those, those are nails and then paints is nails up. And, and so on. And uh, basically, then it, it looked very different in the beginning. We actually used some other uh, formalism. It really isn't anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a model. It's a framework. Because a model would imply that you actually have rules that you need to follow. We have, uh, yes, we have thinking patterns, which we haven't expressed. I can use them. Uh, many people actually re who have read about this, this somewhere have contacted and said that they actually do understand how to use them. And, and it's pretty interesting what, what people have done with that model. And uh, it's also pretty interesting that it is still really valid after nine years, which is usually not the case. So, but, but what do you have to do to make a model? Well, basically, you have to, to make your thoughts structured in a way that resembles some kind of model or framework. And is there demand for more results? Is there demand for more? Yeah, well, they provided lots of models. Extreme programming is one model. Scrum is one model. You can actually combine Scrum and extreme programming because extreme programming is the technical practices to, to make excellent code quality, and uh, Scrum is a project management model basically on, on, on these time horizon thinking, except they don't go to the long-term planning, and they skip this difficult stuff, right? Requirements engineering because, well, that's, that's for the product owner to do. And, uh, of course, we train the product owner, nobody. Well, nowadays the Scrum Alliance, or, or at least some, some Scrum trainers do that, but I've been to one of those trainings and it was a laugh. It doesn't really amount to anything 
doesn't take away the experience. But is there uh, uh, basically? I wouldn't say there there really is a call for many new models. There there is call for common sense in putting together practices in any kind of company. But I think there are thinking tools available already for that. Time boxing, time pacing is one of the thinking tools. And uh, some of the lean ideologies is one other thinking tool which you can use in actually seeing. The point is, there isn't really any kind of process. There is one process model which is applicable to every kind of situation. It's the iterative and incremental software development model. But that doesn't say anything. It's how you put together practices to actually be able to, to, to perform better than your competition. What practices do you choose to use pair programming? What, what, what technologies do you use in, in your continuous integration environment? What, what are the best technologies? They will change every year, almost. What, what, what tools do you use to, to, to make your uh, unit tests? What tools do you use to make your acceptance tests? Stuff like that is actually much more important than to devise some kind of high-level model. The high-level models are there already. The, the low-level stuff, how to do things more effectively, which technologies, which, which practices to use, that is always the open question. I don't think there is a need for any, any thinking, new thinking models necessarily today. I think we have good ones already. People just basically don't know them or don't know them well enough to use them effectively, but that's another problem. And uh, Philip Kruchten from, from Vancouver, he actually suggests that people should, should just use time to read a bit more to, to, to get ideas from others. And uh, that, again, is, well, what you could do in a hardening sprint. You could actually take some time to read stuff, not only blogs, but actually scientific or at least more scientific publications. The blogs are really good because you get new ideas and you get them from your peers. You can actually trust them. They have tried something in practice and it actually works, so you might want to try it. And then there are the scientific publications, which naturally are a bit late for the industry because scientific research takes time, to publish takes time, and uh, the results will be nine months too late anyway from, from where the actual thing happened, which you report. So, so in that in, in that sense, even reading blogs and following blogs is a good thing. The problem with blogs is anybody can say anything. How do you know what is true? Well, there, there are no truths. There are opinions. How do you know which opinions are good and work for you? You don't know unless you know what you're doing, how you're supposed to be doing it, and know your own context. And the only thing to do that is by thinking. And to learn to think, oh, oh well, 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 that's a long story. I, I'm not sure I, I'm, I'm still able to think clearly in many cases, so it's a long journey. Okay, that didn't answer any of your question, but anything else? I mean, that was a really good question and, and a really big issue, which, which probably this course is, is too early on, so to speak, in the training to actually go and answer it, but it's a really good question. I've been figuring out that for the past two years.
a lot. And actually, last week I came to that conclusion, which I just presented, that there really isn't need for those kinds of models anymore, or at least for the moment. Okay, so we had one. We have had many, but the first case company, actually, who piloted the, the, the model, which I just showed you about time pacing. And uh, they started in, in, well, they contacted us in September 2000, and uh, we're a startup company, and they wanted to do, to, to do better. And they heard that we were having this research project started where we wanted also to figure out how business development alignment and stuff like that would be made better. We had read about, of course, the new agile movement and stuff like that to begin with, and uh, it's something we could immediately throw back to them that, okay, there are these suggestions on these kinds of models and, and practices. So it was kind of this, okay, we do stuff like this, okay, we've read about this, have you considered it? Oh, yeah, well, no, yes, we, we would like to try that. So they did. And uh, they were doing some kind of mobile office and email solutions at that point. Nowadays, they have, well, they're much bigger and do different stuff. Uh, they might still have something of that left, but I'm not sure. I haven't checked. At that point, they had 24 personnel, of which 11 basically were, were developers or, or so-called R&D. And... Uh, they participated in the research project for one year, and uh, we basically bounced back and forth some ideas and uh, figured out how things would be done. Their uh, team lead for the R&D was their process owner, and he actually wrote his master's thesis about their new process at the same time. So it was like a really good opportunity to actually get the company to really figure out how they want to do things. And get some of our ideas tried in practice. And uh, after one year, they, they stopped being in the research project, and then they continued working on their own. And we went back one and a half years after that to check, okay, are you still actually using this thing? How, how are you using it today? Have you made any improvements? What, what's happened? Tell, tell us about it. And, and Let's see some data if you can provide it. Well, again, this measuring thing isn't, well, it's not a strong suit, unfortunately, so not that many measures were available, actually, of how well they were doing, but it was obvious that they were doing pretty well. They told that uh, the first A4 that we produced, which showed, actually, their process, because you can actually show how your process works with one of those pictures, or the old picture which we used at that point. And uh, they could take that, go to a customer negotiation, and uh, tell the customer that, okay, our process works like this. Here is where you can influence what we do. And uh, this is our roadmap. This is how we work. We have a roadmap. We, we have stuff there. And uh, they could do that negotiation trade-off thing with the customer. And... The customer thought, okay, this, this guy seems to have it well, well in control. Let's, let's, let's buy software from them. And, and that, they said, had actually been better and easier to sell stuff when they could actually show on one A4, not, not 
a, a wall full of uh, folders with lots of process descriptions. One A4, that was descriptive enough to show their process. They could convince the customer, okay, this seems to be a reliable supplier, let's, let's buy their software and see how it goes. So, so they had customers like, like Swiss Telecom and, and uh, big really big customers, Vodafone, and, and they could bring them in, even as a small company. So it did work. And uh, when they also started to use uh, many of the extreme programming technical practices, their level of quality was markedly improved. We could, we could actually see from their bug reporting systems that the bugs reported by customers were went markedly down after they started doing automatic unit testing. Even when there were two really big customer releases in, in, in the summer after they started using them, and there were some complaints because they really have to, had to do a lot more than they had capacity to do, they did a lot of overtime, which usually always influences quality. <laughs> because when you're tired, well, you're not at your best. Don't do overtime. Unfortunately, our studies will require you to do lots of overtime and reading in the night and stuff like that. That's really not good for quality, but hey, it's the politicians and we. We're sorry. No, we're not. But anyway, try, try to get over that. And uh, good stuff happened and, and we actually wrote wrote papers on, on those, well, at least one, well, two, one paper, and then I actually did my licentious thesis on them. He wrote his master's thesis, and then stuff went well. And what, what did they actually pick together? Well, this is pretty much what they picked together. Uh, at that time, we called the, the biggest circle for long-term planning, strategic release management, actually a word that has come back in literature in the in the late late later, even even this and last year. <coughs> they had release projects and uh they had a commercialization sprint, so they didn't have stuff ready after each sprint. They had a release candidate ready after a release project cycle. And if that candidate was deemed good enough in a checkpoint, it went on to a commercialization sprint where they put together all the needed documentation, did all the, the needed system tests, and, and fixed, fixed the remaining, well, remaining at least serious or critical bugs. And uh, they had an R&D process for the software development part, but they also had for the business part a, a kind of stage gate process model where they had gates where they checked the maturity of the product, is it ready? to go forward, should we do some decisions about what to actually include in the sprint, should we consider de-scoping the, the project, the release project, and stuff like that. So they had the checklist of things which, which they considered at every gate to see if it was wise to go on with the product the way they had figured it out or if they need to change direction in some way or make some, 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 some sort of adjustment. And, uh, well, it worked pretty well after eight months or so because the managers and the salespersons went always to the team and, oh, I just sold something I needed tomorrow. Uh, we have a one-month sprint ongoing. Tell us that in two weeks when the sprint ends and we can plan the next one. No, 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 but I need it now. It, 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 look, a blank check. Uh, 
It took eight months for them to get that together. Well, why? Because of human beings. The management said, yeah, we're all for it. We have, you have 110% our support. Let's go with Scrum. Let's, let's have these XP practices. Okay, Scrum means this and this. Yeah, 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 yeah. We understand. We won't bother you. Yeah, right. It took eight months because it took eight months for one of the business people to actually step out of the business role he was in, step into a process role for the business people, and uh, kind of write the process from the business perspective how the business should work with development, or R&D in this case. And when he wrote that in their language and was one of them, they could, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, this is what we're doing. You, you said you understood when we said it to you six months earlier, seven months earlier, eight months earlier. Yeah, but, oh, you meant this? No, we didn't really get it. Great. And in 11 months, they actually could pretty much deliver what was in the roadmap. So, so they had a nice release written. They had a roadmap and they had estimates that they were actually working. And they had a way that, yeah, no, 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 one month is, is quite good. We don't have to bother you. Let's, let's, let's put it in the roadmap and see where it goes. And they did get it working, but it was a lot of work to get there. Yeah. And these are for later use. So they had a team, some kind of management team that, that would sit on those gates and judge where the project, release project was going and uh, making all, all those necessary decisions. Should it continue to go there? What should be changed in the plan? Have the market changed the need for the release or something else? And they had a nice little checklist. It, it was kind of a, I think the whole process after eight months described was something like 15 slides, which mostly were pictures of how it worked and a few checklists. Pretty easy stuff, easy to check, easy to read, even easy, almost easy to memorize. So it worked. And they had a separate R&D process, which used Scrum as a project management framework and XP practices for the technical part of, of doing the project. They used backlogs. Uh, they had a product backlog for each product. They, at some point, they had, I think, three or four products in that two and a half years' time. And uh, they kept all that stuff there. They went from having a list in Excel to, to trying a backlog tool somewhere else, to trying uh, Bugzilla for backlog management, back to Excel, back to something else, back to Excel. And uh, Excel was, well, for many reasons, it, it, it's like crap. But you can do magical things with Excel and, oh well. Always easy to go back to Excel, but consider that you have 15 teams, you have uh, 15 product owners, and you have one product they are working on. How do you actually do this with Excel so that everybody can actually get their stuff together in that same Excel at the same time? Hmm. Well, yes, I know about Windows Live, but uh, it's a bit restricting, I think. So, yes, you should do something with a database that actually can handle these simultaneous users. 
to actually get the backlog working in, in complex situations. But for simple situations, why not Excel with macros? Great. We actually made uh, one of those to one, one other company, and we're still ashamed of that. But oh well. All the ideas for the product in one list. And uh, prioritization was made so that they had released backlogs basically in the roadmap. Uh, High-level ideas on what to actually release in what project, product, at which point in time for those release project cycles. And then they split stuff from there to the sprint backlogs to see what should be accomplished in one sprint and, of course, made some task planning and, and, and stuff like that. And they had a really rigorous sprint planning procedure. It actually took them one and a half days to, to <coughs> both finish the previous sprint. It actually took them two days to finish the previous sprint and plan for the next one. And this might seem like a lot of overhead, but then again, I've seen situations where they use half an hour to finish the previous sprint and one hour to plan for the next, and they always failed. So at least somewhere between those couple of hours and couple of days is a good point. If, if you have two-week sprints, it would be kind of seriously bad if, if it took two days to, to actually finish and plan for the next. If you have one month, two days of one month is 10%. 10% of, of actually spending time considering what you should do isn't that much, if, if you really think about it. If you think about the recommendations or, or data from software projects that have, have used the waterfall model, the part of design and planning could take 20-30%. So 10% is actually not that bad. It's actually pretty good. And what they did was they had a really rigorous, rigorous way. They had this uh, team consisting of every possible viewpoint to the product, every possible stakeholder that had some kind of interest and viewpoint to the product, service manager, uh, product development manager, uh, uh, chief operating officer for, for any technical larger decisions, and so on. So they had nice viewpoints, even in the small company, to every, every angle of the product, and they knew about every possible trade show or, or wherever they would need to show their product. So they had a really good way of, of making those plans with people that knew. So they would figure out which stories would be needed next to fulfill, fulfill the vision of the product. And then the team would meet those people and they would tell about, okay, we consider that these goals and these stories would be good for this sprint for this and this reason. And then the team would question, aha, aha, do you mean, okay, you have this story, does this mean, what are the constraints? And they would have this discussion for, for a couple of hours. And then the team would say, okay, I think we get it. Now we will go plan the tasks and see what we are actually able to accomplish of all this. So the team would know their velocity, and they would plan for those tasks, make estimates for the tasks. They didn't really plan planning, play planning poker. It wasn't around at that point, but they did do this discussion of estimates, so they might as well have played planning poker. And then they then they came back and said, well, we can do basically about 60% of these things. What would you like to take away? Because we can't do it all. And then they would have the next discussion, okay, fine, if we take away this and this, mm, okay, well, well, uh, 
But are you sure you can't do any more? Of course. It's their job to try to get more out of the team. And the team would say, yes, we're sure we can't do any more. But yes, we can leave them under the cutoff line. And if we do get to that, then we can do it. But they never did. But they did, after 11 months, start getting pretty often to that cutoff line and being pretty predictable in what we're doing. So you can actually learn how to estimate. Because if you do re-estimate every day, you start to understand what mistakes you are doing in your estimate. And you can finally take them into account in the first estimate already. Or at least you're in the ballpark that this one estimate went that much wrong in that direction, but that went that much wrong in the other direction. So in the big scale of things during one month, you would get pretty much what you wanted, at least from the goal viewpoint. So they did get that one working. And uh, release planning didn't really involve the team. It did involve key partners and other key stakeholders and their test lead because uh, in release planning you had to consider all the necessary tests that need to be done and accomplished for it actually to be a viable release with all the re release criteria in place. So they had a discussion with key partners, key customers about what they would actually want. Uh, they would use the roadmap as a tool to begin with to show that, well, it's still, this is what we figured out for the future. Are, are we in agreement? And, uh, okay, we are in agreement. Well, for the next release, how would you like to see these things? What are, what are important things for you considering these features we, you, you wanted? And through that discussion, they could take it further and, and bring it to the team in the sprint planning then that's okay. For these features, our customers value these and these things. So they did get also that discussion and planning going pretty well. And as I said, and uh, in the demo, they did compare what was the plan, what did we accomplish, why didn't we do it all, and then they had some sort of short retrospective. Uh, it wasn't really good maybe as I would like it to be today, but they did have a retrospective of, of what kind of practices. And the nice part of that retrospective thing was that since that process owner and team lead had done his master's thesis and considered lots of things to include in their process, which he didn't include until somebody in the retrospective brought a problem that those things would actually solve, and uh, he was even smarter than that. Instead of actually suggesting those things himself, he might have talked to somebody else before that meeting and, and figure out those problems even before the retrospective. And those ideas then about how to solve those came from somebody else than him. And it made the whole thing work a lot better. The buy-in was better. There was pretty much every retrospective had new ideas from new people. So, so everybody felt involved and committed to the way they were. And it worked well in that way. But there was always the backup. If nobody had any idea how to solve it, probably the process owner, team lead, could, could kind of look at his big list of things he wanted to get done from his master's thesis. Well, well, we could try that one. So, so even there, the so-called pre-planning did work in a way. I would consider it a waste in many other situations, but since he had to do his master's thesis, that was a really good place to do that pre-planning. So it worked well. And uh, as I said, the commercialization sprint packaged the product so that it could be delivered to customers 
and they could start using. This is actually the example I told you earlier about the daily, daily scrum, where after one and a half month they thought, well, half of them thought it was a ridiculous practice, and then they started to learn to actually do the planning and, and splitting of tasks so that everybody could finish, say, two tasks even in, two, in one day. So, so uh, one and a half years later in the interviews, when I asked what would be the one practice you wouldn't give up even if I asked you to, three out of four interviewees said the daily scrum. So if you do it long enough and you get it working, it's really a good practice, which you wouldn't give up anymore after you get it working. Unfortunately, I've seen implementations of daily scrums that are awful, that actually resemble daily or, or weekly meetings on a daily level. Ooh, what could be worse than that? Yeah, for those who, who are interested in reading more details about that, it's actually with the company's name provided too, because it's open knowledge. Then, then there are some references. And now we're running out of time, which I guess. So, I said something about Lean in the beginning. I have, I have a few slides, but we won't go into those, those anymore. Casper asked me to have them if I have time. Well, I didn't have time, so if you have any questions, we still have, I guess, some time for this. Okay, if there are no questions, then thank you, Christian.